Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Megan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. It sure is. Yes. And we're back for another feminist favorite yes, episode. Yes, we are. Our favorite. Our favorite. And, you know, let us know how you feel about these. Are you still feeling them? Do you like them? We've chosen to do them once a month because we could see through our analytics that they were episodes that were popular and we did have people reach out and say that they enjoyed them uh so if you are still enjoying them we would love to hear feedback from you if you think it's too much let us know (laughs) if you would rather us do them like twice a month instead of every single week we can also scale it back every single week you mean every month Wait, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we are not just a feminist faves podcast, although yes. that would be fun. I yes. do love uh, getting into these biographies. Are you finding that it is harder and harder to find forgotten favorites that have more than a paragraph about them on any website? Well, Because yes. forgotten is hard. It's getting yes. harder. It is hard. So for this one, this is one where I'd seen it on, for, for mine, yeah. I'd seen her on an Instagram post okay. and saved it, which I do. And then I go back and I like Perfect. look through my saves. Um, but yes, when I decided like, yes, I'm going to talk about this person, I went and I Googled and I have like one, two, three, four, five, six different websites that I referenced. Right. And it's because each one only had like snippets. Like her Wikipedia page is not very long. Yeah. So I had to kind of like take some from over here and some from over here and like kind of. Yeah. I find that like Wikipedia is a very good jumping off point because a lot of times I'll have to like side Goog a thing that they don't fully explain in Google. Like they'll mention something that I find super fascinating and that I'll have to like Google that thing specifically to see if there's any news articles or anything on it. Yeah, usually I definitely look at Wikipedia for kind of like an overview. Totally, yeah. Uh, But for this one, that didn't even help me very much. Like I honestly barely looked at it because there was so much more information other places. That's amazing. And maybe we should be the ones to edit their Wikipedia page. Yeah. And get more info on there. Yeah, I can add these references in. Why not? Why not? Why not? (laughs) Let's add another thing to our plate. Let's make our busier with another task literally never uh i will never do it i'm tired as it is like seriously i feel like and listen it's a labor of love totally but i feel like starting these podcasts because i do have the two podcasts and then i am working with like theater companies still and 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 yeah, working. You're, a, you're a crazy person i don't know <laughs> i don't know what you're doing I, I think it's aged me for real like my vanity kicked in and i was like maybe i need to stop just because I feel like it's making me look older. Like, for real. Like, I was just like, oh, my God, I think I'm eating wrinkles. I feel like, you know, whenever you look at a president at the end of their four years, and yeah. you're like, wow. They aged a Obama lot. got old, you know. Like, Dude, the pandemic aged me. I have, same. like, six gray hairs now, where I used to only have two. Now, like, if you go, I mean, it's probably more, but I can only see, like, the, oh, well, I just dyed my hair. But, like, the under part, I'm getting these long oh gray hairs and they're coming in like not curly but like wiry wavy and wiry and I'm really hoping that I get like a curly like gray a hair gray situation yeah like kind of just wavy mm-hmm. because I'm really sick of just having the flattest mm-hmm. boringest hair imaginable you know um I can knock on something that I don't have any gray hairs yet I have no gray hairs you have yet. none none that I found none yet oh my so god when it happens I'm gonna lose my shit dude oh my god like, I got my first gray hair when I was like 18 or 19 like in the very no, front man. it's never it never gets very long it just kind of like sticks up right here have you like Max has a full streak oh, on one side and it looks great like he gets so self-conscious about it and I'm like but it stayed in one part of your head it's, that it's was like my grandma this happened to her. streak mm-hmm. and I'm like that looks cool like it people do that on purpose no I, I do I do think that that is cool yeah. and like I think that you can be a silver fox all day I'm just saying for me like it is a it's a sign it's that is scary. very shocking, and I started noticing just like 
my skin not being as like elastic anymore and just kind of sagging a Mm, bit yeah Mm -hmm. like in the cheek jowl area Mm -hmm. and it's probably things that nobody else would even recognize about me but I'm like this pandemic did it to me yeah yeah I'm like I see it Madigan girl I see that face I'm staring (laughs) right at it like you need to do something about that no but I I I have like noticed that for myself to the point where I'm like I think I'm gonna start taking collagen supplements like I think I gotta start like preemptively being like oh we gotta and it's so weird because like pump the brakes bro I'm so used to being like the youngest in a group of people Mm -hmm. like I've always been the youngest and I am like one of the old ladies at work and so like I feel like everything that I'm noticing I'm like noticing everything so much more than I did before because I'm like with back to school happening I am seeing people I went to high school with posting pictures of their kids who are like in middle school that's bonkers isn't it like I'm like oh my god like I met you whenever we were younger than your kids are right now. Like, oh, I'm yeah. like, I'm there's, gonna pass out. There's some uh, people that I went to high school with that like had kids. Who had them young. In, in college, mm-hmm. like really, really young. There's this one woman who like literally got pregnant her first semester of college. And she has like three kids now. And one of them's in middle school. And then like the other two are in grade school. And she's like 30. And that blows me away. It's, I, I, ugh. I don't envy her life I, at all. I don't. <laughs> Listen, I'm too selfish for that shit right now. (laughs) I just still feel too young to have that kind of responsibility. But I mean, because we are we're mentally young. I think I think that's the issue is that both of us in our minds still feel like we're a certain age. So when we see signs of us aging, it's just like, wait, what? No, that 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 can't be right. It's very weird. It's very weird. Anyway, uh, what are we talking about? Let us know if you feel this way. Um, Okay, so (laughs) all of our listeners are like Gen Z. They're like 16, 17, 18 year olds that are like, I don't know. I'm I'm hot. I don't know what you're talking about. My sweet summer children. (laughs) Enjoy it because at one time, not that long ago, we were young and hot. I thought that I'm still hot. I don't care. But I'm but yes, I understand. I understand the sentiment. Yes. But but yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Getting back to... Not trying to say you aren't hot. You are a goddess, Keegan. Thank you. Don't even worry about it. As are you. Thank you, my darling. All right. Let's talk about another goddess, shall we? Let's do it. I'm excited to hear who you're going to talk about. So I am going to be talking about Ophelia DeVore today. Have you Mm. ever heard of Ophelia DeVore? I'm horrible with names. The name is not ringing a bell, but maybe when I hear the story, there will be something familiar. But as of right now, I don't know. I didn't know about her. I probably don't then. Um, The name, gorgeous, right? I have always loved the name Ophelia. Me too. It's such an emo girl thing, but I had such a like resonance with Ophelia from Hamlet in high school. I was like, oh my God, she is like tragic and beautiful the most tragically yeah. beautiful character of all time i thought she was like the coolest so i loved the name ophelia i'm here for it well ophelia devore was actually born emma ophelia devore i so love she just the name emma too dropped that first name which i think is still incredible like yeah. the last name devore you just sound like you were built for greatness do you know what i mean it, it, the last name devore reminds me of the last name dubois like um blanche dubois right yes very it's, like fancy mm-hmm. yeah glamorous or even like deville like corella deville oh, where it's, God. which i understand that's taking it a different direction but she still was glamorous you can say whatever you want about her but i mean she was a puppy killer but she was glamorous glamorous fuck. yes so Emma Ophelia DeVore was born on August 12th, 1922 in Edgefield, South Carolina. She was one of 10 children. Always so many siblings. It's a lot. Um, To John Walter DeVore and Mary Emma Strother. And her father was of African-American, French, and German descent. And her mother was African-American and Native American, Cherokee descent. Okay. Uh, both of her parents worked to make ends meet and her father um, owned his own road contracting business while her mother was an educator and a musician. Okay. She attended segregated schools as a child, but her mom really stressed education and good etiquette within their home. So when... Which I feel like was a very common thing at this time for, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in a lot of the movies that I've watched where, you know, schools are being integrated and things like that, where there was a lot of importance on 
black children to have like the best of behavior to not give any more reason for criticism and things like that. Like don't give them a reason to dislike you if you're on your best behavior and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think I have talked about it on this podcast before, but that was definitely a thing. My grandma, my tiny little five foot grandma used to walk around because she had five boys with a belt around her neck in grocery stores or in anywhere they went and they were to walk single file with their hands down. You have said this on the show before. I remember you And it was for that that. reason. It's because she had five black boys and she was like, they need to behave. They always had every item of clothing down to their underwear was pressed, right? Because like they needed to present themselves as like better. They had to work that much harder than any white family Mm -hmm. to come off as, you know, well-behaved yeah. and well-dressed. Holding yourself and, well yeah. was very important. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I'm sure that that was part of it as well for their family. Um, but she so stressed education that when her husband's business began to cause frequent interruptions to the children's schooling due to his traveling schedule, she sent Ophelia, I'm going to talk, I'm going to say Ophelia, even though at this time she was probably still going by Emma. Right. Makes sense. Um, she sent Ophelia to live with relatives where she would have more stability. So she first, but how would the father having to leave for work affect I the think, schooling? I think that they moved the family quite often because okay, he okay. had his own business and I think he maybe traveled. I see. That and makes sense. would pick the kids up and move them somewhere else. So she was traveling amongst different like schools. And having to go to different... Yeah, okay. That makes yeah. sense. So she first went to live with an uncle in Winston-Salem and then two years later, she went to go live with an aunt in New York City. So while in New York at the age of 16, she took an interest in modeling and was encouraged to give it a shot. She's so beautiful. Like if you see a picture of her, like gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. I'm going to Google it, but you can keep talking. So she began to take on small hair care modeling gigs because it was one of the only opportunities available for black models at this time. And there were a few things that gave her a distinct advantage over other models, especially other models of color during this time. One was her background in dance. So as a child, she had taken ballet, which would she would go on to say later in interviews was vitally important to her success because the modeling poses that were used at the time were based on ballet and dance movements. Yeah, I can see that too, because if you're a dancer, uh, particularly with ballet, I feel which is like super structured, you're just very aware of your body and like the shapes that it's making. So I can see why dancers would make such good models for that reason. And I had never put it together that way before, but when I watched an interview with her as an older woman talking about this, uh, it really did. I was very fascinated by the fashion of the 30s and 40s whenever I was a teenager and I got a lot of like fashion books yeah. and like looked at a lot of that stuff. And when you look at those models and you look at the way they're holding their bodies, it is very similar to like ballet. And it's she very said, like, and yeah, and light. She, she said that they actually did directly take a lot of modeling poses that were used in a lot of these catalogs and for these like major, major fashion brands right. from directly from ballet and dance. I so, love that. So it, it really did help her because if you didn't know what you were doing, you'd be dismissed as an amateur right away. Like, you know, there wasn't a lot of amateur models because you had to look a certain you had, way. And you had to be good the first time you went on a job. It's not like there's like a learning curve. Yeah, you know? especially if you were a model of color, which there really weren't very many. She was kind of the first to start getting even some moderately higher gigs. And right. as you probably saw in the picture that you, you looked up of her, she's... An absolute knockout. A total knockout. But another advantage that she had, unfortunately, um, that this had to be an advantage was that she's light-skinned because she, she is yes. mixed race, you know. So uh, that was another kind of thing. She was ambiguous enough to kind of get by. So while keeping up her modeling jobs, she graduated from Hunter College High School before going on to major in mathematics and minor in languages at New York University. Brains and beauty. My goodness. (laughs) So after graduating, she decided she wanted to grow her professional training. So she enrolled at New York City's Vogue School of Modeling. And she told the history makers in an interview that she did later in her life that everyone at the school seemed to love her. She picked up the movements quickly um, because of her modeling experience and dance background. But no one at the school seemed to know that she was black. At the time, the Vogue School of Modeling didn't take 
black students. Right. So she said that she recalled a lighter skinned black woman. She um, she said that she was like a cafe au lait. So I kind of like probably my color. Right. Um, who came in to uh, she wanted lessons. She wanted to enroll in the school. And she just, she was like, the atmosphere was so wild. Everybody was like in a tizzy running around trying to figure out what to do because they were like freaking out that this, Oh my God, this black woman wants to be a part of it. Right. Do they know all the while she's sitting there like they must be stupid. Like that's kind of like what she said. For real stupid. She's like, I don't know if they thought that I had a tan or, or what it was, but you know, Oh my God. Have you ever seen the interview with Rashida Jones where that's on the red carpet? They're like, Oh, you you look so tan. Were you on a vacation? She's like, no, I'm just ethnic. Yes. I wish she had just said like, yeah, my dad is Quincy fucking Jones. Like, are you stupid? Yeah. Do you know who Quincy Jones is? Are you an entertainment area? Really? My dad is black. (laughs) What are you talking about? Yeah. Idiots. So... The, this experience where she's in this school kind of like receiving these privileges and all this praise when the, meanwhile this like black woman comes in wanting to join this modeling school and they refuse to let her join as well as other forms of discrimination that she did face as a woman of color in the modeling industry. This inspired her along with four of her colleagues to found the Grace Del Marco modeling agency as a way to help create opportunities for models of color. I love that. It was a challenge, to say the least, because not only did they need to sign and place models who often had little, if any, experience just from not having opportunities, um, but she also knew that they would need to educate companies about how and why they should engage the non-white advertising market. Well, that is that was the thing I was going to say, because it's one thing to create an agency where you want to have a more diverse clientele. It's about also getting those people booked. Who's going to hire them. For things. Exactly. You have to change a whole mindset. But as you said, she's very smart. And so she knew, like, I need to come at them as like a businesswoman and say like, look, these are the benefits. There's a whole market of people who you're ignoring, who you could be making Making money money off off of. of. Yeah, totally. Which is a very smart strategy. Yeah. So she's widely considered to be the first to coin the term black is beautiful as a selling point for her agency and her models. I love that. And she was determined to change the way African-Americans were stereotypically depicted uh, in printed media at the time. Because you look at ads from the 30s and it's a lot of like Aunt Jemima, Mammy type characters. Gone with the Wind was big at the time. uh, And a lot of very racist caricatures of black people in advertising. It typically wasn't a glamour shot or something of them looking very beautiful it was more of like a character piece right from the things that I've seen very similar to what they would be portraying as actors and actresses as well right this was just the beginning of starting to see um, black women being depicted as sexy like we with a Dorothy Dandridge or a Lena Horne like right the very beginning of starting to see some of that stuff right um but definitely was not across the board and definitely not in printed ads yeah. right so two years after starting the Grace Del Marco modeling agency in 1948, Ophelia created the Ophelia Divorce School of Self-Development and Modeling, specifically to educate and make connections for actors and models of color. And its curriculum included a variety of classes to impact knowledge um, that you needed to, how you needed to hold yourself in the public eye, right? Uh-huh. And all of this, I realized, can sound through a kind of like fourth wave feminism lens can seem very like, ugh, like we had to act this way to be accepted. Right. But you kind of had to, like you had to be it able is to something play you this have game. to understand the times mm-hmm. a little bit. And I think that that's, Unfortunately, I think for a lot of black artists, that is kind of, you know, I look at Sam Cooke and different things like that, where they still had their like very, revolutionary activist sides to them, but they also understood how to play the game. Exactly. In order to get ahead. And then right. it wasn't until years later that we were kind of like, oh, it's kind of fucked up that we had to play that Absolutely. game. Absolutely. Yeah. And then kind of change yeah. that behavior. But at the time it was smart. Like that was the way yeah. to get ahead and kind of fool the white population into accepting you. Accepting you, yeah. Right, because unfortunately when the people who are in power are these kind of like white people who see you a certain way, you kind of have to present the way that they want you you to be seen. You yeah. know what I mean? I don't know how to say that. But in a, in, in, a, way, in but a 1930s, 1940s lens, that's what would make the most 
sense. It would right. make the most sense, you know, to not get the criticisms and things like that that a typical person of color would get at the time. You have to kind of play, like I said, play the right. game in order to create more for yourself and for the next generation coming. Right. It reminds me of that documentary that we watched about trans representation. Yes. Where it's sad. Disclosure. Great Disclosure. Oh, yeah. Watch so it. good. Um, but it's sad that the kind of like first initially like accepted trans people in our media had to be like cis passing. Yes. Um, or play by that, that kind of like that very narrow definition of what we can see as, as being acceptable um, within our a media. A more like digestible version of what a trans person or a black right. person would be for right. the general public. But yeah. Unfortunately, you know, because of that for it did break barriers in terms of like it slowly inched that door open and right. i think that that's kind of like the same because you need people to be empowered to make change but you have to get to power in some way shape, and or be form. visible right yeah, like yeah. so these initial people had to play this game so that they could be visible to other people who could see them on tv and say or see them in a magazine and say like oh i can do that right. at some point yeah it'd be easy to criticize but i think once you put yourself into that perspective it makes a lot more sense yeah so they're at this school, the Ophelia DeVore School of Self-Development and Modeling. There were dance and movement classes, etiquette, makeup instruction, training for using a microphone, as well as any other subjects that she determined that were necessary uh, for her students to kind of get started in the business and present themselves well in I public. I really love this. Yeah. I really like the idea. Yeah. So initially, the school was held in the back room of a photography studio. I thought you said the bathroom of, the of a photography bathroom. studio, and I was like, shit. No, the back room. Started from the bottom, now we here. Okay. Uh, but as its success grew, she needed more space, so she rented offices in the Empire State Building. Ooh. Started from the bottom, now we're here, indeed. For real. <laughs> uh, by the time the school closed in 2006, it had more than 20,000 students having gone through the divorce school in 2006. Oh my goodness. And what made it close in 2006? You know, I don't know. I didn't see. Um, I'm not sure. Probably there's just too much competition at that point. There were Maybe, probably yeah. like so many other agencies. Like but more how amazing agencies. that it could go for that long. I mean, that's hitting like a historic status. Yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. And it became the entry point for a lot of people who would go on to be famous, including Dion Carroll, who, um, or Dion Carroll. Yeah. Dianne. I think it's Dion. I think it's Diane. Uh, Diane Carroll, although it's spelled with a H, which makes it confusing to say. <laughs> um, but she's huge. She was on Broadway. I think she was in the original Raisin in the Sun. Um, she's she's huge. Richard Roundtree, Cicely Tyson, and Helen Williams, who would go on to be widely recognized as the first black supermodel ever. Wow. Also gorgeous. Um, she was at the time in like the 40s. She was selected to be a showroom model for Christian Dior, which was something that was not done for black no. models at the time at all. Wow. Um, 40s or 50s. When Cicely Tyson graced the cover of Ebony in 1955, sporting an afro that has now been attributed to the birth of the black is beautiful um, natural hair craze of yeah. the 60s and 70s, she was repped by Grace Del Marco models at that time. So kind of at the height of like that they ushered in that market. And see, that's kind of what I wanted to point out was like, yes, Ophelia DeVore was so smart in, because she knew that we need to play their game so that eventually we can have Cicely Tyson sporting her natural hair on the cover of a magazine that, yeah. that really did kind of start this culture shift for in, black women. In accepting natural hair. Right. Yeah. Across the country. And we're going to get another black woman to model for Dior. Right. I mean, those are huge, huge things. Mm -hmm. So the agency would later be renamed Ophelia DeVore Associates and then Ophelia DeVore Organization. That same year in 1955, DeVore and her models made history as hosts of ABC's weekly television show Spotlight in Harlem. This was the first television program in New York City produced by and for African Americans. Um, she also made history again when one of her clients, Cecilia Cooper, was named Miss Cons Festival Film Festival in 1959. And she was the first American of any racial background, white, black, any racial background to win that title. Wow. And then a second client, 
uh, Lejeune Hundley won the next year. So two in a row. Whoa. Mm -hmm. She knows how to groom them. Yes. (laughs) She was also a civil rights activist who received personal accolades from Martin Luther King Jr., And she would also take models to black colleges in the South where she would hold self-esteem workshops for the students, encouraging them to see their own beauty despite the Eurocentric beauty standards of the time. So she brought in models and she's like, look at them. Look look at how beautiful they are. are. (laughs) You're beautiful too, you know. That's such a good idea. Super cool. Self-esteem workshops. Uh, Representation matters. So cool. Uh, So throughout the 1960s, she continued to basically revolutionize every facet of the model and modeling and beauty industry. She created two of the first nationally known ethnic beauty contests in the United States. She developed a fashion column for the Pittsburgh Courier newspaper and created a line of cosmetics specially formulated for people of color. Awesome. She later became the owner and publisher of the Columbus Times, the CEO of the Columbus Times which was based in Columbus, Georgia, and she was the founder of the Black Press Archives at Howard University. Oh, damn. (laughs) She produced several New York City cable television shows, including the Affiliate Divorce Show, which to date became one of the longest-running cable shows on TV and paved the way for many modern talk shows. So a lot of the modern talk shows that we see hosted by women um, came from kind of this idea. She's like the original Oprah. Yeah, so for her service, she's received more than 300 awards wow. and honors, and she was named one of the 75 black women who changed America in the I Dream World series in like 1985, I think. Wow. She also served on boards and committees under four United States presidents, including the President's Advisory Committee on the Arts for the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C., And in 2004, she was honored by the Fashion Institute of Technology and the Fashion Arts Exchange Incorporated for her contributions to fashion and entertainment. (sighs) Breathe. (laughs) She died peacefully at a New York City hospice on Friday, February 28th, 2014, at the age of 91. Shortly before her death, she was interviewed for the Black-themed news site, The Grio, And she told a reporter, quote, I wanted America to know that beauty isn't just white. Oh. Yeah. So she's lovely. Ophelia. I I didn't really know anything about her. And it's kind of amazing. That's kind of why I like doing these ones. Because there are so many people who have paved the way for the rest of us. Oh, I didn't know that's why we have that. Or I didn't know that's where that came from. And then you're like, holy shit, this, it was all from this one person. And we're (laughs) in entertainment and we've never heard of this. I was just going to say, this is like a very Keegan pick. Yes. Like the modeling, the entertainment. Like I totally see that. I love it. I'm so glad you told her story. Oh, thank you. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's big give week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I want- 
wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I am going to be talking about someone whose photo... I've seen a lot on different feminist pages and things like that, but she's not someone whose name I really, you know, remembered, and it's not really someone's story that I knew at all. I'm going to be talking about Shulamith Firestone. Okay. So Shulamith was born uh, Shulamith Bath Shmuel Ben Ari Furenstein. Wow. Long, long name in Ottawa, Canada on January 7th, 1945. She was the second child and first daughter of her Orthodox Jewish parents, Kate Weiss, who was actually a German Jew who fled the Holocaust. Side googed the hell out of that. Couldn't find anything about it. Like I even went to like Kate Weiss's find a grave. Like I found her and I still couldn't find any more information about her. That's interesting. I know. I'm like, I want to know. Well, because also she was, uh, Shulamith was born in 45. So this is shortly after and like during the war. So I'm like, what happened? I want to know her mom's story. Me too. Isn't that wild? Couldn't and she find didn't, a damn thing about it. And she didn't talk about it. That's interesting There's as well. There's literally nothing. I could barely find out a single thing about this person's personal life. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. But she did a hell of a lot, so let's talk about it. Um, and her father's name was Saul Furenstein, who was a Brooklyn salesman. When Shulamith was four years old, her father took part in the liberation of the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in Germany. So very, very, very tied into the Holocaust and the end of the Holocaust. And where was family. she born? She was born in Ottawa, Canada. Oh, okay. So her family left Europe. I would assume so, but it doesn't say where her father was from. Like, that's the thing that, like, I really wanted to know more about her parents because I feel like that's such an interesting origin story. Yes, But there's, like, nothing. There wasn't even a personal life section on her Wikipedia page. Like, there's nothing. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. So she must have actually gone. I mean, I would imagine that she probably went out of her way to keep that stuff kind of, like, locked up because. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe it's something that she would have written about later on in her life. But there are some reasons that we'll talk about that maybe she was just unable to. So. Uh, the family anglicized their name to Firestone when she was just a kid and moved to St. Louis, Missouri. Her father, Saul, became Orthodox when he was a teenager and allegedly exercised tight control over his children with the zeal of a convert. So he um. was an Orthodox, like born into it. Like he was very much attached to the Orthodox part of their faith. The, the zeal of a convert, like that phrase, which yeah. I know is, a, you know, a popular phrase, but like that phrase, it really, it, it says something. It says a lot. We know, we all know people who like were not raised in a religion who like converted, converted. to it and they are so much more hardcore yeah. oftentimes than yeah. people who were like born and raised. Totally, totally, totally. So Shuli's sister, Tirza, told fellow feminist Susan Faludi, my father threw his rage at Shuli. Shuli was expected to make her brother's bed because she was a girl Ugh. and other things like that. So, you know, traditional gender roles, things like mm-hmm. that were very, Fundamentalist very... kind of beliefs, yeah. Yeah, very, very um, highly regarded in her family. Another sister, Layla, remembers father and daughter threatening to kill one another. So there wasn't a lot of love between the two of them. But at least them. Shuli hit back. Oh, for real. Like, she doesn't seem like the type of person that would take somebody trying to put her down where for me I would crumble into a ball and cry yeah I would have been obedient yeah yeah exactly her sister Tirza also described their mother as having a quote passive view of femininity that was governed by what she regarded as quote what Jewish women do so she was from a very traditional you know family nuclear family kind of lifestyle and it seems like she really really resented that She had attended Washington University in St. Louis and in 1967 got a degree in painting from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. In adulthood, Shuley was just over five feet tall with a long mane of black hair down to her waist with piercing black eyes, typically covered by Yoko Ono style glasses, which I think is such a great description of her. Great look. Oh, yeah. Very like... 
hippie. 60s. Very 60s hippie look, yeah. At the age of 22 in 1967, Shuley, along with nearly 2,000 other young activists, attended the National Conference for New Politics in Chicago. There, she met Joe Freeman, a fellow feminist, and the two discussed their displeasure in response to the dismissal of women's issues at the conference. The director, William F. Pepper, refused to recognize any women waiting to speak. When Shuley and five other women rushed the podium, Pepper patted Shuley on the head and said, Cool down, little girl. We Ooh. have more important things to Ooh. talk about than women's problems. What? Don't pat Shulamith Firestone's head. <laughs> I can't imagine a more condescending interaction. Do you? Okay, this just made me think of something, but do you? Have, well, first of all, have you ever been called like good girl? Like, has anyone ever said good girl to you? Not recently. That is like <laughs> my biggest pet peeve. Like, I was with my like really really horrible ex he would call me good girl or Uh -uh. good little bitch all the time yeah yeah and max will say it sometimes like as a joke like if i make a really good dinner like good girl and things like that and i'll be like Uh, don't fucking say that to me like it makes my skin crawl and when i was a kid i didn't like it when like coaches said that to me because i'm like what am i a dog it's weird i don't like it i feel like it's condescending no matter how like i was even trying to think i'm like oh maybe my grandparents have said that but I'm like, I don't even think that that's the case. And even if they did, I think I would still be like, I don't like that. Yeah. Even though I would understand where it was coming from, I still, I don't, there's something about that specifically. I know, doesn't it like make your skin? It's yes. been always a thing for me. And like that just reminded me of that. And I was like, oh, heebie jeebs for sure. Oh yeah. It's just creepy. I don't like it. Shortly after the conference, Shuley and Joe called a meeting, which spawned into the first Chicago Women's Liberation Group. It was known as the West Side Group as they met in Joe's apartment in the West Side of Chicago. Joe started a newsletter a few months in called The Voice of the Women's Liberation Movement, which circulated nationwide and in a few foreign countries, and that is what gave the movement its new name. After establishing the West Side Group, Shuley moved to New York to flee an abusive boyfriend. Another thing I side-gooped, I was like, can I find out about Shuley's personal life or relationships? She kept it locked down. Locked down. She really, really did. In some of her unpublished work, she recalls the abuse she was subjected to, including being hit so hard, one of her teeth was knocked out of place. So she like fled to New York to leave this abusive relationship. And there she helped found the New York Radical Women, an early second wave radical feminist group, along with Robin Morgan, Carol Hanish, and Pam Allen. Carol Hanish is another one that I was thinking about talking about because she's one that was like pretty big in the second wave, but the name just isn't that like recognizable as like Betty for Dan and Gloria Steinem and things like that. Yeah, name's not ringing a bell for me. Yeah, exactly. If you saw her picture, though, I think you'd recognize her face. Hmm. Uh, So this was actually the first women's liberation group in New York. The manifesto for the group was called the New York Women's Principles. And in the manifesto, the group was defined by their shared rejection of history based purely on a male perspective and how women's history has been oppressed. It stated that anyone who believes in feminism should work together to fight against that oppression. The manifesto also included that the group did not believe violence was an appropriate action to create change. The group also instilled a psychology program that was considered radical. In the program, it taught women to view themselves as more strong, independent, and assertive. It was believed that by doing so, women would not be as subservient to men and help combat the societal depreciation of women. I love that. I love it. I love an assertive woman. (laughs) Me too. In 1968, Shuley wrote and published The Women's Rights Movement in the U.S., A New View. The essay focused on her belief that the movement had the ability to become revolutionary. She asserts that the women's rights movement has always been radical. The third group she helped create, she created a lot of these big groups, was called the Red Stockings. And that was created along with fellow feminist Ellen Willis. And we, they co- do you know about yeah, this Yeah, well, we talked about them during our Lavender Scare episode. Yes, mm-hmm, you're because right. Because a lot of women left now and joined Red Stockings. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Bringing it all back. Uh, they co-founded a radical feminist group, which was named after the Blue Stocking Society, which was an 18th century women's literary group. So that's how the Red Stockings got their name. 
That's very cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. The group supported history being portrayed by female perspectives and believed that female writers could help protest the patriarchy. They would get together and do a lot of what we're doing right now and talk about women's issues, women in history, talking about aspects of their lives such as childhood, jobs, motherhood, so on and so forth. And they described their own personal experiences with each other instead of just focusing on written material and things like that. So it really was almost kind of like a group therapy session where women could kind of learn from each other's experiences and talk about women's history and things like that. Uh, They also believe that conscious raising actions could help address old ideas and present society with new ones. Much like the New York radical women, the Red Stockings believed in revolutionizing society at a psychological level. She was very into, um, you know, Marx's theories and Freud's theories and things like that. A very, very smart woman. And they wanted to revolutionize society at a psychological level by getting women to explore their own individuality in order to resist male dominance as a way to get their power back. The group also put out a journal and the and they did the protest of the Miss America contest, which is a pretty famous, famous, protest. Yeah, yeah, very, very famous protest. They uh, they organized the rally along with co-founder Hanish uh, and Hanish said that she got the idea for the protest after watching a movie that depicted how beauty standards are damaging to women. This was like a new idea mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, there were clips in the movie that she saw of a Miss America parading around in her swimsuit, which got Hanish thinking protesting the pageant might be a good way to launch the small movement into the public consciousness. At the protest, women threw out and burned objects that were associated with pain toward women for the sake of beauty, like corsets, high heels, girdles, bras. Bras. And that's where we got the burning the bras, Mm -hmm. you know, stereotype and things like that. And they say that this protest really was like the beginning of the official women's liberation movement. And they talk about that in She's Beautiful When She's Angry, uh, which I know we've talked about many times on this podcast. Wait, what? I don't know (laughs) what you're talking about. But in that documentary, they do talk about this protest in particular. So if you want to see some like great kind of like in-depth conversation and clips from these protests, uh, you should go watch that for sure. I mean, just watch it. We've mentioned it a million times. I know. And we did actually have someone reach out and say that they did watch it. And they were like, it was good. It was so good. So, yes, I will always recommend it. It's free on YouTube. Go do it. Boom. In 1969, Shuley organized the first ever organized speak out on abortion. The speak out consisted of 12 women who Shuley had convinced to share share their personal accounts about abortion. The group would also disrupt abortion law hearings, participated in the burial of traditional womanhood that took place at the Arlington National Cemetery in 1968. And that was a funeral that was held for a dummy dressed to resemble the common housewife. Wow. (laughs) Super fun. Yeah, she was radical as fuck. Right. Well, I mean, she seems very into symbolism. Very much so. As a visual person, I can totally understand, like, feeling like, no, 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 in order for this to seep into the public's consciousness, we need to make it something they can see and feel and experience. Exactly. And not just something that is, like, abstract or intellectual, you know? And it's these things that, like, make the news, too. Right. You know what I mean? Making these big spectacles. So in order to make this movement the thing that it would become, we needed people like her in order to kind of like make a big spectacle to get it into the public consciousness. She also joined in releasing mice in Madison Square Garden during a bridal fair, as well as joining in ogling the men of Wall Street to draw attention to sexual harassment, which I'm sure a lot of you have seen yes. those videos. Mm-hmm. She's one of them that's like hooting and hollering at the, you know, men on Wall Street. Talking about like their, that. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what Shulamith is most known for is her piece of work called The Dialectic of Sex. And that was published in 1970, which immediately became a classic text of of second wave feminism. Like this is a book that if you were to go into like, if there was a feminist section of a bookstore, this would be right there with the feminine mystique. Like it's a very, very, very prominent Mm -hmm. second wave feminist text. This was her first book and it was published when she was only 25. I don't want to talk about it. We were just talking about how old we feel. I don't need... I don't need this. I don't need this. Shulamith, okay. you're rubbing it in our faces. <laughs> in the book, she shot 
In the book, she sought to develop a materialist view of history based on sex. She had adapted the theories of Marx and Freud to an analysis of women's oppression. She argued that women occupy a sexual class below that of men and that gender inequality originates in social structures imposed on women through their biology, meaning pregnancy, childbirth, childrearing, and so mm -hmm. on. Shuley argues that the, quote, sexual class system predates and runs deeper than any other form of oppression and that the eradication of sexism will require a radical reordering of society. She claims that the biological sexual dichotomy is the root cause of male domination, economic class exploitation, racism, imperialism, and ecological irresponsibility. So she believes that, you know, the patriarchy is essentially the reason for everything wrong <laughs> right well i mean it sounds like she's basically saying that there are biological quote-unquote disadvantages yes. that women have that work to keep them oppressed right yes. is that how, am i hearing that correctly i think so and i think it's all it's that idea because she's taking from like freud and marxism which is very much like I don't know how to explain it, but I feel like their ideas are very much rooted in biology and like you can't control yourself and your responses to things because it's all biological. Like it was very much on the nature side of well, the nature nurture argument where I think she's trying to say that as part of it as a way for us to examine the way we've been oppressed to then change it in the future instead of saying like, this is just how it's going to be. It sounds you know? to me also, or this is how I took it when I was listening to what you said, yeah. that there is a biological element when you're talking about like childbirth and like the rearing of being in charge of kind of like the household and the family, right. that being tied to your biology in terms that like women are the ones who bear the children and right. things like right. that, that are then that 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 is then used to keep to keep them keep in the us home in a lower to, class yeah. right totally like, totally from a yeah. biological level like that's kind of what i hear when she says that totally but without yeah. reading no that, i think that i, I, I think know. that sounds totally right totally sounds and, like and a i think that there is truth in that i think yeah. that there is truth in that like there has been this belief that women have to be protected because we are the carriers of future generations. Yeah. And while that can appear to be noble in the way that it has been perpetuated via the patriarchy, what has happened then is basically that men have taken control over women. Yeah. Because of we have to, you know, totally under the guise of like we have to protect yeah, and how that would be a biological thing and probably what she would be saying in both men and women, the men wanting to protect and the women wanting to, you know. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting thing. I mean, and again, all of, I'm saying all of that without having read anything. Right, but, well, and this is also a book from 1970, so it's not right. exactly going to be the viewpoints of things today, but a lot of the things she said were incredibly revolutionary at the time, and it really created this whole other way of thinking about sexism and feminism and things like that. She writes that the goal of feminism must be, quote, not just the elimination of male privilege, but of the sex distinction itself, which I think is actually very, very, a very modern way of thinking right. about mm -hmm. things of, you know, we have to eradicate this gendering that we're doing with each other because it's keeping us oppressed. Well, it's probably one of the first, well, I don't know if it's the first, but it's probably an earlier kind of conversation around gender being a social construct exactly. before we had the language to have that conversation where it's yeah. like sex might not be a social construct. Like that is something that you can say is biological, but gender is a social construct. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And she, and she did have very revolutionary ideas as to, what a future family would look like, like and things like that. She felt that women were limited to the need for them to have children, and by reproducing, they could not be individualistic. She regarded pregnancy and childbirth as barbaric. A friend of hers compared their labor to shitting a pumpkin. <laughs> well... Listen, I don't know. I don't have any kids. But yeah, to her, she was like, no, 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 we shouldn't do that. Uh, she believed that contraception, in vitro fertilization, and other magical I said magical advances. Medical advances. They are like magic, though. <laughs> They're pretty magical. Um, other medical advances meant that sex would one day be separated from pregnancy and child rearing, which would free women. And this was before, like, 
in vitro fertilization was even really a thing. It was like not even barely in talks, but she had this idea in her head of creating a bottle baby where essentially you wouldn't need a man or a woman, but like a baby could essentially be created in a lab, which is something that's very possible today. And you know, again, I do think these ideas, again, without having read anything, I, I can't really speak too much about her ideas specifically, but I can say that it is an interesting conversation to have been had at that time because I think even to this day, a lot of the reason why like the the right, the religious right, conservative politics wants to keep such a eye on women's reproductive rights is because they want to keep sex tied to procreation and right. like and reproducing and stuff. And I do and think marriage that, and marriage <laughs> and I do think that that is tied to wanting to keep women in an oppressed state. In, yeah. in some way. Yeah, so I, I mean, do think she, that there's truth to that. She makes a lot of sense in a lot of the things that she says. Another theme in her book is parenting, and she criticizes the dynamic that exists in heterosexual parenting and child development, in particular, the nuclear family. So I mention this again because she really did have a, a difficult time growing up in her orthodox upbringing. You know, she felt very, very oppressed by her father. They did not get along. So it makes sense that she would have this kind of understanding of why the nuclear family setup could be something that is not for every family and how it could be damaging. She wanted to eliminate families altogether and instead have children raised by a collective. I mean, hey, it takes a village, right? Yeah, I mean, I, f- I feel like that's hit or miss given what we know about cults. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, I understand the sentiment. The sentiment is really great because she hoped that it would lead to the abolition of the culture's importance on gender and challenge the assumption that biology is destiny. Like, all of that makes sense. Yes. Just some of her ways of going about it might be kind of, like, not the greatest, but her heart's in the right place. You know what I mean? And she makes a lot of sense with all of this. I don't think necessarily all of us should live on a commune, but I think the ideas of breaking down what a family looks like and having it be less gendered is what she was going for. Opening the conversation, I think, is great. Yeah, totally. By the time the dialectic of sex was published, Shuley had refrained from political circles. She moved to St. Mark's Place, which is in New York, and worked as a painter. In the late 80s, she became mentally ill. So this is why I'm wondering if we don't know much more about her personal life. Maybe she would have written more about her personal life. Uh, in the years coming, if her health hadn't taken a turn, she would never publish another piece of work until her collection of short stories on poverty, mental illness, and psychiatric hospitals was released in 1998 called Airless Spaces. In May 1974, she was called home to St. Louis and was told that her brother had died in a car crash. She later learned that he had actually died by suicide, but since her family was orthodox jewish that was against their beliefs so they told her a lie and i guess this event is what they say kind of spurred a lot of her like more visible mental illness symptoms well do you like i can't put into words the betrayal i would feel Totally. If someone lied to me about something like that. 100%. And I think she already had a not so great relationship with her family. And it sounds like she was already starting to struggle with some mental illness. So this event really, for lack of a better term, kind of made her snap. She once stated that, quote, whether murder or suicide, afterlife or no, his death contributed to my growing madness. It's so sad. She did not attend her brother's funeral, but after the funeral, Shuli's parents decided to move to Israel, which started a huge fight between Shuli and her parents, and the argument ended in her disavowing her parents. She was like, I'm done. She verified this in a letter saying she had, quote, dissolved her tie of blood. Wow. I'm here for it. I mean, healthy boundaries are important. Shortly after that, her father died, which her sister Tirza says was when Shuli went into full psychosis. She was then officially diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic and was frequently hospitalized on and off for the rest of her life. Her psychiatrist shared that she suffered from something called Capgras syndrome, which caused oh, her. Oh no! Do you Cap know about grass that? Is the worst. Yeah. yeah. Oh god, it's awful. It is. It, it's something where it made her believe that people in her life were what she said hiding behind masks of faces. 
Like, so is it just kind of something where you can't there's a really understand great, emotions in people? Or? There's a really great um, stuff you should know episode on this. If you're interesting, if you're interesting, if you're interesting, if you're interested, I'm super interesting. Um, there is a good episode on it, but basically it's kind of like an invasion of the body snatchers situation where you can. So for me and you, Madigan, it would be like, I, I can see you. I know you look like you, but you're not you. And I know you're not you. Oh Do you know what gosh. I mean? So yeah, like you see like something else that has, aren't there or just that, I see you, but I, I believe that something else has taken over your body. Ugh. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And this has happened. You know, there was a murder that happened where a man murdered his girlfriend. And that's what happened. He was just like, it wasn't her. Like it, well, it looked like her, but it wasn't her. But it wasn't you know what like I mean? something had like possessed her and things right. like that. And it oh, happens gosh. a lot with like parents and children and vice versa. Oh, so so it's, sad. it's one of the most like upsetting diseases I've heard of totally and I mean schizophrenia in general has always been a terrifying thing for me when I was a young adult like they say that a lot of times children will not show signs of schizophrenia it won't show up until like you're a young adult yes and I remember learning about it in high school and being like oh my god what Same. if it happens Same. because oh. they say like in your early 20s is yeah. when it, you'll likely show signs yeah. and it scared me too I was just like what if I don't want to hear voices like it is the most terrifying disease to me it is so scary her friends and acquaintances began a community effort to watch over and care for her at the assistance of her uh, psychiatrist. Or her psychiatrist kind of got her friends and family together and was like, we really need to, you know, take shifts, keep an eye on her, take care of her, all of this kind of stuff. Once her psychiatrist had to leave that job, the group stopped coming around to help, which makes me very mad. Yeah, and I, it's a very upsetting because I know that I know that that can't have been easy on anyone. Like, oh having my gosh, because you're situation. not dealing with your friend anymore right. when she's in. Right. But they need you. They need you. Like, yeah. uh, this woman needs you so badly. On August 28th, 2012, Shulamith Firestone was found dead in her apartment in New York City by the building's owner. And I didn't take notes on this because it's really sad, but like, it was like over a week before anybody even knew she was dead. That's terrible. And she was, and there was like a smell and the building's owner was like, what is that? And that's the only reason why anybody knew she was gone, which to me, that's so scary. Is oh the my God. scariest and saddest thing for someone who is like this historical figure, this badass feminist chick yeah. that did all of these amazing, great things, published a book by the time she's 25. No one knows she's dead. Yeah. And she's alone. Yeah. Like that, it gives me goosebumps and it makes me want to cry. It's very scary. It's not a fate that I would want anybody to have. No. It's just, oh, it's so sad to me. So did she, how did she pass away? They don't, they say that she just was found deceased. There's a few different theories, I guess. Uh, there was no food found in her apartment and some people believe that she was starving herself, whether that be part of her psychosis or not. I don't know, but some people believe that she was attempting to starve herself to death. The, I, the, the, the amount of guilt that her friends must feel I know I can't imagine and I don't know what year she started going into psychosis I want to say it was in the 80s yeah it was in the late 80s that she became mentally ill so she was suffering for a really long time it was 2012 when she passed away so I wonder if you know it was more natural causes caused by her illness you know it yeah. didn't say exactly but it sounds like no one would know Right. She was alone, and that just makes me really, really sad. According to Shulamith's sister, she died of natural causes, but because of her family's orthodox views, they never did an official autopsy. So that's why we will never know exactly what happened to her. It is said that she lived as a recluse up to her death, surviving on public assistance. A memorial was held, which really turned into another great radical feminist gathering. There, women handed out flyers on conscious raising and displayed copies of texts from her days as a red stocking. Radio host Fran Luck called for Shuley's apartment to be named the Shulamith Firestone Memorial Apartment and rented in perpetuity for an older and meaningful feminist. Isn't that a great idea? Yeah. Like, it, so as sad and horrible as her death was, I'm glad that people understood the weight of her death and was able to do something wonderful to be able to honor everything that she gave 
the feminist community. Her legacy is mostly the dialectic of sex. It is still used in many women's studies programs to this day. It recommends raising children in a gender-neutral fashion. There is typically debate on the use of technological technological advancements and reproduction. Her idea that more women need to be in fields such as engineering and science are still prominent today as well. Julie's views help scientific advancements in artificial sperm and eggs and how their production may lead to the elimination of differences between the sexes. When Shulamith attended the School of Art Institute of Chicago, she was the subject of a student documentary film, but it was never released. Experimental filmmaker Elizabeth Subrin found the film in the 1990s and did a frame-by-frame reshoot of the documentary, which was released in 1997 under the name Shuli. The film depicts Shuli as a young student and her journey to becoming one of the most notable radical feminist and feminist authors of the 20th century. The film won two awards, including a 1998 Los Angeles Film Critics Association Award. Award. I wanted to end it with something that was written on a Guardian page about her. It says, Firestone's legacy is her challenge to the left in her refusal to accept that women's liberation should be shelved until after the revolution. And that is Shulamith Firestone. Wow, that was a ride. I know. It made me, uh, and this is the thing, is I sometimes I'll read someone's whole story like on my phone before I get in front of my computer and do my notes this time I kind of went in blind and just started from her early life and didn't look ahead so it was almost kind of like reading a book when she started getting sick yeah. and things like no 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 like don't let this yeah. be true yeah and it's it's such a devastating story but at the same time like I almost feel like her brain working the way it did gave us so like such a great blueprint for what feminism would become in the third and fourth waves as well. Like she really had this forward thinking, radical, very intense, you know, way right. of thinking yeah. that I think really set us up for and the rest of the movement. I really don't mean to romanticize mental illness. It's not no, my intention, yeah. but I do think, and I was having this conversation because I went to the, you know, that immersive Van Gogh exhibit. Yeah. And, um, you know, he also completed suicide. And I would ha- had also just recently been reading about uh, Sylvia Plath and Virginia Woolf. And it made me think like, is there something unique about the way that their brains worked that maybe we wouldn't have these like incredible works of art or yeah. these and I don't think that's novels. and I don't think that's romanticizing necessarily in a way I almost feel like that's honoring different brains and how they work right right you know because I think there's also the flip side of that to where people would say you know very negative things about mental illness instead of realizing that while it ruined this person's life her unique way of thinking her very unique brain is the reason that we probably have a lot of the mm-hmm, exactly. scientific developments that we have the it's reason influenced that, how many people's yeah, lives totally. right and that's not to say that it, it's oh, almost, it was worth it or anything like that it's not yeah. to say that it's just to say that like there is something there is something incredible about being about not being neurotypical right well, and because there's I something feel like worthwhile is, about not being neurotypical yes, as well exactly. and that's the thing is it's like you don't have your brain doesn't have to work a certain way in order for your ideas and beliefs to be taken seriously and to be true and I think especially because you know I don't think that there were a lot of clear signs and symptoms of mental illness when mm-hmm. she was younger, at least nothing that I read about. Um, I'm sure that she was still seen as being this, you know, wacko, weirdo, out there person at the time. But now in hindsight, we can kind of see that she really she really was just this amazingly forward-thinking, take-no-shit kind of person. Very, very strong in who she is, as most of these people that we talk right. about and, are. And maybe some of those things that we would classify as being weird or were signs of the fact that her brain worked differently were actually the reasons why she was able to like come up with all of these incredible ideas. They, they, yeah. they made her less inhibited, right? Like yes, her brain was less of, inhibited, less it, able to see boundaries of what society deemed to be acceptable. Yeah. Right. You I know, mean, that kind of cool. reminds me of Greta Thunberg too, because I know she always talks about, you know, the fact that her autism is like a superpower because she's able to like super focus on the thing that she feels 
is the most important to her in her life. Like it's kind of her way of being the best at something. And she's very thankful for her autism in that way. And I think that for anybody who's struggling with mental illness, you know, instead of seeing it as being purely negative, seeing your unique qualities that you've gotten because of the way you are. Right. I mean, and all that to say also, get help you know if you're feeling like well as long as you're you know getting help and things like that yeah i'm not saying if you are seriously struggling you should feel lucky for that but i'm saying if you're in a place where you know you're being medicated or you're in therapy and you're working on it you know don't feel badly because your brain is wired a certain way yeah you know that that is the way you are and maybe that is part of what makes you special as well and see the world in a different way yeah absolutely so that's surely yeah, very cool. All right. Well, we had some good ones this week, I we feel. always do. These I mean, really they are, are my they are favorites. Always good, yeah. But these <laughs> yeah, were yours two... really sucked last time. I don't wow. know. <laughs> these were two women who I had genuinely never heard of before. Yeah. So very, very cool. I know, truly forgotten, but shouldn't be... All right. That's all we've got for you today. You all have such amazing topics for us. So if there's anything that you would like for us to talk about in the future, please go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also direct message us and follow us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the group page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. Last but certainly. Business page and group page. Thank you. Yeah. Keegan Winfield. Last but not least, we would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us out so much. It makes our day. And that's all we have for you today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to, to rage on. on. Bye. Hey, I'm Jillian Clare, the host of the podcast, Thanks for Coming In. I've accumulated some pretty crazy audition stories over the past 20 years, and so have my friends. And I was like, you know what? No, I'm not going to do this. And then Disney calls and is like, we need you to come test for the Ant-Man movies. I didn't know if my scene was going to get cut or not. Ooh, I could play that. Tune in every Thursday to hear your favorite actors tell the funniest, saddest, and most cringeworthy audition stories. Sometimes even the one that got away. Thanks for Coming In is available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.